Hi, this is Mike McGinn, and welcome to You, Me, Us, Now, a podcast about people who try to change things, who they are, how they got involved, what they care about, what they're working on now. So I'm Mike McGinn. I was a mayor of Seattle from 2010 to 2013. I'd been really, really engaged in climate politics and neighborhood politics for a long time. One thing led to another. I became mayor, and then I wasn't mayor, but I met really fascinating people in my experience as mayor. And this podcast is to try to bring out them and bring out their voices and what they're working on. Because I believe more people should be activists. And maybe you'll learn something. Maybe you'll be inspired. Maybe you'll just have a entertaining listen about the topics of the day. My podcast guest today is Sara Tacola. That song you heard is one of my favorites. It's Pop Staples and the Staples Singers, Freedom Highway. And there's a line in there, made up my mind, not turning back. And uh, that makes me think of Sara. Sara is young. She's 22 years old, but she's been deeply, deeply engaged in local activism and local politics. I, I first met her at a forum on divestment at the University of Washington, and she was working to get the University of Washington to divest from fossil fuels, ultimately succeeded partly with the university divesting from coal, but not divesting from other fossil fuels. But at the time, it was the largest public institution that had ever uh, made that decision. Uh, Since then, bigger ones have done it, and the divestment movement continues to grow. And I got to see Sara in action, and I don't think I have ever seen anybody more determined or come more alive behind a megaphone than Sara does. And uh, there's a determination to her that I've, I've always really admired. The other place I saw Sara doing a lot of work was in the Black Lives Matter campaign as well. So, Sara, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me. I appreciate you doing so. I am impressed by the fact that you've been a leading activist in two separate areas. What do you see as the intersection between Black Lives Matter and your work on climate? I think they're essentially the same thing when you look at it. Um, the Black Lives Matter movement, it's against state violence on black bodies, climate change. It's primarily affecting and killing um, black bodies again. So, um, and if you look at with climate change on an international scale, you'll see that um, when you look at the numbers, who's dying the most because of the climate impacts, you'll see that it's primarily like all the global South, but the people who are dying at the highest rates, it's Africa. But then um, uh, when you look at who polluted the most, it's primarily like the white countries. And then again, with the Black Lives Matter, it's the same thing with the state violence. It, you know, primarily it's black people getting shot. If you take into account the, their population, um, and primarily it's white officers that are sh- doing the shooting. And I don't, I haven't seen that um, kind of. I, I'm working on it, but um, you know, kind of joining the two. Uh, but I think that you know, the they bring out different audiences because when you look at like the Black Lives Matter movement, a lot of the energy, a lot of the people who came, come out, you know, they range from a lot of different areas and there's a lot of different reasons they come out, but a lot of it comes out of emotion. People are coming out because they're seeing people getting shot um, and, you know, it's painful and it hurts. Um, I was just talking with my partner yesterday and, and we can barely even go on Facebook now because our timelines are just choked full of videos of black people Mm -hmm. being killed by police and so you know with that emotion 
it brings people out into the streets. But with climate change, it's a slow, insidious killer. Um, but it's still killing. It's still killing blacks and Native Americans at the highest rate within America. When you look at, like, it's a uh, 66% of African Americans live within 30 miles of a coal fire power plant. And then when you look at um, the impacts of that, you know, um, blacks have some of the highest rates of asthma, respiratory diseases are dying at a higher rate because of these things. So it's a lot slower. The coal-fired power plant's never going to shoot you, but the, it still will kill you. But it's harder for a lot of people to make that connection or even to, you know, fight against that when you have a direct threat. Um, even the way that we are wired as humans, we're going to go... Um, you know, fight off the most, you know, the most right. direct threat first um, versus thinking about on the long term, you know, what's going to end up killing us all, which is climate change. There's a lot in there. And, you know, there's a topic I want to turn to more at the end of the show as well. We were talking about how we structure the show. And and one of the things that I've really struggled to articulate with, and, and you may have articulated better than I've, I've ever been able to do so, so far, is is when I was mayor, you know, and I came from uh, neighborhood organizing and environmental organizing. And, and when you're mayor, you have to work with every community. You have to deal with every community's requests. You have to figure out what, what's the best way to, to, you know, bring everybody along, bring everybody up in a city, bring everyone together in a city. And one of the realizations I came to was that the degree to which race was at the bottom of everything in America. And I've always been struggling about how to articulate that better and try to make that connection. Because as we know, it's a very uncomfortable conversation for people to have. A lot of folks are much more comfortable if we can have a discussion about an issue without talking about race, because they just don't want to do that. So we'll get back to that, but let me get your background. I mentioned how old you were, and we were talking a little bit before the show. Uh, You've grown up here in uh, SeaTac, which is a suburb of Seattle, as well as Maple Valley, which is a pretty rural community. in, in the Seattle region. Your father's uh, an Ethiopian immigrant. Your mother is of mixed race heritage. And when I met you, you were studying science at uh, the University of Washington. But here's my question for you. Uh, you're such a passionate activist. Uh, you care deeply about what's going on. When was the first time you kind of felt you know, a consciousness of the issues and said, I need to get involved. I need to get engaged in some way. I would say that I kind of became um, conscious of these issues by the way that I was raised. Getting involved in environmental issues came at a later time in life, but the way that I was raised was definitely uh, with an orientation towards justice. And um, in such that, like, I I went to a co-op school. Um, It was like a home program where all of the classes were taught by other parents. And uh, that really kind of opened up a lot of opportunities and fostered like a love of learning and also um, like a critical analysis, um, being able to question things and, and being able to question my teacher when I transferred to public schools, the same type of questioning. Even in the university, I found the same type of questioning that I did would get me in trouble and people's ego would get um, affected by this questioning, but it's essential. Um, Do you have an example of this? This is less questioning than more of a statement, but the one of the first times that I got in trouble for like standing up for justice was um, in fifth grade. 
um, I was at a private Christian school because she thought I'd transfer better there. And that's kind of where I found out that I was liberal. Example I can give is when um, one of our teachers tried to use the excuse that God wants us to drill in the Arctic for oil. And I got really mad and I called her a liar and a polar bear killer. And she kicked me out of class. But my mom supported me because uh, I, I told her, like, you know, I did the right thing. Like, she's lying. Like, there's there's no way you can talk about the destruction of the earth and say that God wanted us to do it. Um, and then later on um, in high school, I did a research paper um, talking about, like, the benefits of marijuana legalization. The teacher, in, you know, again, she came from a conservative background, and she tried to get me in trouble for it. Um, at the time, I was also in Running Start in community college, um, and I had actually gotten the paper reviewed by a professor in, in community college. And so I knew that my research was, was um, sound and that it was a good paper. So she sent me to the principal's office, and again, I had to defend my case. Um, so I, I, from a young age, I guess I got into questioning the status quo and questioning kind of when the authority says something, a lot of people just accept it as it is, but I didn't. But my environmental, getting involved with environmental work, that started differently. That actually, I didn't um, start that until after I had kind of um, lost myself in large part to the prison to school pipeline and um, being treated from the get-go from public school as a criminal and um, getting sent to, you know, being suspended and expelled for all these things. I didn't really understand why. Let's talk about that. You're saying that you were in a forum last night, a women of color speaking out on climate, and you relayed the story of what it was like to be, you know, a young black student in school and the experiences that you had. I think the probably the funniest part of that was that I didn't, um, coming from like a homeschool program um, and the way that my parents had raised me, I didn't understand the implications of what, you know, being a woman and being a, a black person in America was and the stereotypes attached to that. And so when I first started in the public school, um, the coach told me I was just what they needed for their basketball team. The kids, you know, they, they asked me to rap for them. And I, I didn't understand why, but, you know, I did poetry and I was getting a lot of attention and I was new to the school and I was like, well, cool, this is an easy way to make friends. And then I got suspended for having a rap battle and it was, um, but the white kid that had asked me to do the rap battle and was doing it with me um, did not. And they said that I had taught them and they didn't know this before this. Um, that's why they didn't get in trouble. Um, and then I ended up getting uh, expelled for bringing in some um, all-natural, like, supplements that were made out of, like, natural roots and, like, ginger for, like, my stomach condition. Um, I have acid reflux. They expelled me for it, and they tried to say it was acid and because uh, it was, like, a Chinese medicine. They they just kind of went above and beyond, and this was my first year in the public school system. And when I came back, all of the students treated me like criminals, and I didn't get invited to any birthday parties. And all of the kids that I wanted to be friends with, the, the so-called good kids, stopped um, talking to me because of that. Um, they thought I was a drug addict and all of this, and I was like 12. And that kind of led me down the wrong path, and then only the drug addicts would talk to me. And then I ended up actually um, getting into drugs and getting into this um, criminal lifestyle because of... Uh, 
you know, from the get-go how it was treated. So that was a, it was, it started uh, probably in eighth grade and it took me till I was the, let's see, I was a junior in high school um, when I was facing a lot of problems and the lifestyle had gotten into was starting to catch up with me and I almost died, almost um, overdosed and was facing jail time. And it was through an AmeriCorps program, um, Washington Conservation Corps. That um, And it was funny how it started because I ran into this guy in this pond that I used to go to. And, and he was in the middle of a pond. And I asked him, like, what are you doing? And I'd always been, like, kind of, you know, inquisitive. Um, and uh, he told me he was building the blueprints for a beaver fence. And I thought that was funny and asked him to help him. And um, from there, uh, I volunteered with him once, and he offered me a job to the Department of Ecology, um, this AmeriCorps position. And uh, it, it really changed my life and got me on the and got me out of that community um, that was endangering me and, and had gotten me into these bad patterns. And then I started working. I, I really love the work and through the restoration. Um, it, we were doing like restoration ecology, planting trees and stuff. And through that, it really restored my own soul. And I realized that all of this energy I had, um, which previously I had been putting toward negative things, when I put it toward positive things, I could make a big change. I mean, we had six people in, people in our crew and we could create an entire forest in like a few weeks, which was once just a, you know, patch of blackberries and so that really inspired me um and also is why i decided to study environmental science and i started um through doing americorps they gave me this love of volunteering so i started volunteering from everywhere from like sierra club to wildlife rehabs and started really getting involved in environmental work and then it was finally i started to realize that like um it was while i was working at a wildlife rehab where i realized that we kept taking care of all these animals that would be hit by cars or ran into houses or, you know, hurt by humans. And I wanted to do something where I wouldn't have to, you know, a lot of the animals died. I realized I wasn't having quite the impact in the wildlife rehab because eventually, um, initially I was actually going to go into wildlife biology. But then I realized like that, that, you know, when you work as a wildlife biology, it's a lot of times it's too far down the pipeline. Like the animal's habitat has already been gone or, um, you know, the animal's already injured. So um, I started looking for a broader impact and learned about climate change and realized this was affecting everyone. This was affecting um, all of the animals that I cared about, but also people. The more I learned about that, it connected to me more because... In a large part, my dad left his country because of climate change, because of um, desertification, which caused a famine, which caused the destabilization of Haley Selassie's government, made his country an unsafe place for him to be, and he had to leave as a refugee. So the more I learned about climate change, the more that I realized, like, this was the place that this is the issue I should be working on that would have a broader impact. Mm -hmm. Um, But then... uh, it so would. that's that's what brought you then to the UW for your studies. Yeah. And what did you start studying at UW? I got my degree in environmental science and terrestrial resource management. I found um, the program to be focused only on one issue, and it wasn't interdisciplinary enough. But um, within 
So I was in the School of Environment and Forest Sciences, but within the College of the Environment, there's nine different schools. So I tried to do research in almost all of them. Um, and I wasn't able to do all of them, but I was able to hop around different disciplines by getting in different people's labs and doing work in them. And um, that gave me more of a holistic perspective, and I was able to work on climate change issues ranging from ocean acidification and hypoxia to um, climate change communication through the School of Public Health. I would love to talk about your climate change communication experience, because I recall one of your experience was going to another state to try to convince Will you describe the project to me? Okay. I'm trying to remember it. Yeah. So, but um, it was, I remember reading about it on Facebook and really <laughs> loving the dialogue that you shared with us there. It, it, was a, it started actually, I first did a project with the School of Public Health and they wanted to work in rural areas um, and teach climate change in rural areas. The rural areas overlap with the conservative areas, which overlap conservatives also have the highest percentage of um, climate change non-believers. So I started out actually in my own town in Maple Valley. And that project, um, I had a hard time like getting a lot of people out to the event, but um, the few folks that showed, it was kind of preaching to the choir. Right. Um, and and so I wanted to do this more, so um, I signed up for a research position at Purdue University in Indiana. And so I went over there and um, wanted to do a project kind of working with conservatives and, and studying because it was really interesting to me that your political ideology would turn you adverse to the science of climate change and why climate change became something political. Um, but the more I studied it and I realized that kind of um, the conservative ideology and um, the purity of the free market, um, climate change um, kind of contradict, contradicted a lot. Climate change is the largest externality in the market. Um, and by acknowledging climate change, you're acknowledging um, the fault of the market. And by acknowledging climate change, you're acknowledging the faults of capitalism and um, this uh, system that a lot of conservatives want to preserve and protect. How would you do your research in Indiana? What I did is we had two different surveys. One um, asked questions about climate change in kind of a liberal way, like um, we should protect the environment. Renewable energies are good for the environment versus um, renewable energies are good for jobs. And so asked each question, um, and so I had two different surveys, one asking the liberal way, one asking the conservative way, and went out and surveyed. And so I tried to find out, like, where could I find, like, rural conservatives, and it's the country fair. And there was country fairs going on throughout the summer, and so I thought I'd just go to the country fairs and survey people. But um, even asking, going to my first country fair, we drove like an hour or two out from Purdue, went to like this city that had way more, you know, cornfields and people. And um, the country fair is really like I learned a little something about like rural um, culture. It's it's really the height of their year. So um, when I went to ask like, hey, um, student from Purdue, um, we're doing a project on climate change. Um, we wanted to know your perspective. Even saying climate change would be volatile. And I got yelled at. So I started saying natural resources. But even like while I was taking the survey, a lot of people got mad. Um, a lot of people didn't believe in climate change. And those are the people that would get mad when I asked them. But then even so, like, I pretty much got like kicked out of this county fair. This, this, the 
guy running it called me a hooligan um, and thought I had stolen the Purdue car. And I showed him, like, my Purdue ID. And it was just, like, really hostile. And I realized also the messenger is important and realized that um, even though the research was interesting to me as a black woman, um, I'm not the right messenger to, to talk to those folks because they were already kind of uh, suspicious of my my being and that kind of country that, you know, I was young, I was a woman, I was black, I was part of the university. And I'm talking about climate change. It's like everything they hate at once. It was too much. <laughs> I, I, yeah, that, that must have been an extraordinary experience. Um, I've been to a fair number of country fairs too. So I, I, I know what you're talking about. But I don't know what you're talking about because I am not a young black woman. I'm an old white guy. Um, but I do know the, the culture of the country fair a little bit. So another thing that really caught my attention about the stuff you did was you got an, a job at the EPA at some point. And I remember that you would uh, write things on the whiteboard at the EPA uh, to try to raise consciousness is the way I saw it. Tell, talk, talk to me about your experience at the EPA and what, what that led you to think about with regards to uh, science and climate change work. Like I said, when I started at the university, I was really bright-eyed and thought I could solve climate change through science. And um, my dream job would be at NOAA or EPA. And I ended up um, interning for both. And it was my job at the EPA that um, kind of um, crushed those dreams and realized that this was actually um, a corrupt entity. Um, and so my my position, actually, I was like developing a kiosk for the Welcoming Center. And so in that, it wasn't exactly the work I wanted to do, but I found it to be an in. While doing that work, I interviewed all of the managers of all of their departments um, to get information about their work for the kiosk. In that, uh, it was really disappointing because like uh, some of the things I learned about, like when I interviewed the oil and gas perimeter for the Pacific Northwest, and she talked about how m the majority of her work is litigation. Um, every time she issues a permit for drilling or, you know, gets a sub an application to drill, she can either pass it and get sued by the environmental companies or not pass it and get sued by the oil companies. And she's like, and frankly, the environmental companies don't have as much money, and so it's usually easier to pass it and deal with that um, litigation because that'd be easier to, to win. And, um, and that really turned me off to hear that they were more worried about, you know, winning litigation battles than um, actually protecting the environment. And then it happened again when I was talking to the managers looking over, like, climate change work in the Pacific Northwest, um, Region 10, and he talked about, and I asked him, like, so what do you, you're talking about this mitigation and adaptation, that's important, but what are, what are we doing to actually um, stop continued expansion of fossil fuels? And he's like, no, no, don't, don't say that. You know, we're we're not trying to pick a fight with oil companies like that. You're gonna get a suit talking like that. It just seemed like they were a lot more worried about kind of not getting sued, um, which I realize you know is expensive and costly. But if you're really dedicated to this work, you should be willing to fight for it because it will be a fight going against um, the status quo, which is currently the fossil fuel economy. And so I uh, realized that in this position, I wouldn't be able to do much. So at least I could let them know my dismissal. And so I, we had a whiteboard in front of our cubicles. People would write cute quotes and stuff. And um, I would write 
facts about like how many years we have to cut emissions and asking them like what are they doing or how many people die each year because of um you know coal fire power plants and how are we doing what are we doing to, to stop this it was funny a lot of people because i i was only there part-time a lot of people would stop and be like oh you're the person who wrote it. <laughs> uh, you were making a name for yourself. <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe a name that so they know who not to let back in. But it didn't really matter because at that point I realized that I wouldn't want to work for them because um, their priorities aren't the same as mine. I was interested in protecting the environment, and it seemed like the Environmental Protection Agency was more worried about not getting sued. My background was I. Um, after graduating from college and kicking around on some odd jobs for a while, I ended up working for a congressman, which was great. And I then went to law school because I was going to get more credentials to work on what I believed in, right? Like being a lawyer would give me more resources and tools to change the world. That's what I wanted to do. And I, I realized fairly quickly that, you know, mo- actually lots of people go to law school for that reason. And lots of people go to law school because they just want to be lawyers and think that's a great profession. And the problem I discovered was that in the environmental law field, and the environment was what I cared about, most of the money was on the side of industry, um, and most of the jobs were there. And there's lots of lawyers who do good jobs advising industry about how to comply with the laws, but there were very, very few jobs and very little money on the other side, which was the, the changing things. And I pretty rapidly moved away from the idea that I could use the law as a tool to, to change things in the world. And and I respect it as one of the tools, but I've always come around to the view that it's public opinion ultimately that drives things. In fact, public opinion even drives law. You know, the decision a judge makes about what is or is not an acceptable activity um, in the marketplace or in the community is driven by larger public opinion about about things. Anyway, we could probably go talk about examples about that, but what it brought me to was was the idea that ultimately you have to change public opinion. You have to change how people think about things if you want the regulators, if you want the courts, if you want the politicians uh, to do things better. Of course, it led me to running for office, too, rather than just pressuring them. I thought, well, I'll just get the job myself and do it, mm-hmm. um, where I discovered I needed, I needed public opinion, too, as well. So, so I, I, I have a sense from speaking to you and from our prior conversations that you've, you've reach that conclusion pretty quickly as well, that it's all about how do you create a change in attitudes towards something from the outside rather than working on the inside. Fair characterization? Yeah. Yeah. So by the way, I was uh, in the papers the other day with Sara. Um, Sara was organizing on behalf of a First Nations indigenous people in Canada. There's a uh, pipeline being proposed to run through their territory that would um, carry fossil fuels that were uh, from the interior of the country. It's really similar to things we're seeing with Native American tribes here in the state of Washington that are fighting coal trains. Um, it's similar to what's happening in Seattle in which we're looking at oil trains. And Sara asked me to come down as we delivered a, a message to the Canadian consulate expressing our support for the indigenous folks up there and against the pipeline. And Sara spoke at that time, you spoke a lot about colonialism. Share with us what you said then and and how you think that relates to the climate movement. I think that, you know, a lot of people see colonialism as something that's over, but um, uh, it's still around. It's still happening. Um, It's just, you know, in the form of more neocolonization. 
I think it's an example, like just the fact that the oil companies want to come on the this um, on the Unistoten land, um, of which they have signed no treaties, um, and they you know they have all the rights to their own land, and they want to come on it without their consent. And the fact that the you know this is there's actually a few pipelines proposed for that location, um, but right now Chevron's pushing first. And the Canadian government's helping them, so in in a in essence, like Chevron, you know, trying to build a pipeline without their consent is a form of neocolonization. But with the government supporting it, it's just it's just regular colonization. They're really just trying to take their land. So it's crazy that this still happens, but at the same time, it's not surprising, um, given that. Our relationship towards indigenous people hasn't changed very much. Um, they still are ostracized. They still are kind of given the short end of the stick and not given a lot of political power or even respect. You know, an issue you raised earlier when you are talking about your dad, you said um, he left Ethiopia in part because of desertification and famine and the resulting you know, political stresses that occurred in the country and that it was time for him to leave and, and come to America. And it, it's one of the things that was always on, on my mind as mayor. We have a very significant East African population, Ethiopian, Eritrean, Oromo, Somali. And one of the things that dawned on me reasonably early, because I, I think environmentally too, was, you know, the fact is that East Africa has suffered through really serious environmental issues, you know, uh, sustained drought, um, desertification and the like. And it's funny, you now hear people starting to talk about the issue of climate refugees. And and I was always hesitant to talk about that because it sounded so apocalyptic, right? Like we're but but I've always believed that it's actually happening right now. And in fact a large part of the reason, you know, why we see so much um out migration from these regions and and demand to come here. I was reading in the paper about the you know, the thousands of uh, refugees that are, you know, at the entrance to the channel trying to get from France into England. And you read about the people leaving on ships from across the Mediterranean through Libya, you know, another failed state, and the hardships that people are facing. And, you know, I think it is worth talking about right now that we are looking at an era of extraordinary consequences due to climate change. And your point about who are the communities that are being hurt and who are the communities that are being benefited, yeah, it tends to be that the colonized, the history of the countries that have been historically colonized are the ones that are getting the most damage and that the colonization occurred from the white countries in Europe. I'm not sure that was a question, Sarah. <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely. And I think that, you know, that's why I see climate change, um, you know, again, it's just like a for their extension of colonization because the natural resources in a large uh you know, in a lot of ways, um, were stolen out of uh, Africa and other countries. Africa has the most natural resources, and yet it's the poorest continent um, because all of those natural resources are not, the profit doesn't go back to Africa. It goes back to primarily, like, white countries. And yet now the burden is all still back on Africa, um, even though they didn't get any of the benefits from burning those resources that were taken out. Um, and same with South America. I think I think it's an important thing to realize because if we don't, then when we start to build the solutions, as we've already started to see, 
if we're not getting input from those who are most impacted from you know those who are least responsible but most impacted then we're not changing anything and we will continue to go about this pattern of exploitation and destruction because you know it's really climate change is going to need more then, you know, it's going to need more than changing your light bulbs. It's going to need more than driving a hybrid. It's going to need more than just a carbon tax. Even after we put in a carbon tax, you know, that's not the end. And that's not really even a solution. I see it more as a bandage um, because really the issue is capitalism's insatiable need to grow and to continue to expand. It's our need to buy you know, a new cell phone that has precious metals every two years. Um, it's our need to, you know, continue to buy the newest model of a car, um, especially when you look at where these are sourced from. Um, everything from the lithium ion in your um, phone, um, these are primarily right now coming out of Congo, um, and there's a civil war there. And it's no coincidence that there's a, there's a civil war and that they've turned against each other. Um, meanwhile, millions of dollars of precious metals are being stolen out of their country every single day. And that way I see it all kind of connected in that we are, you know, um, over-consuming and our over-consumption is killing people on the other side of the world. And um, when we look at, you know, who has the power and who has the burdens, again, it goes back to, um, you know, who was colonized and who was the colonizers. I had a great conversation earlier in in one of my earlier con- podcasts with, uh, Magdalena Rose Avila. And one of the things we've seen, um, an ongoing issue in the environmental movement we hear often about is this issue of, well, the environmentalist movement is white and why can't it be more diverse? Even that is like a false statement in the sense that, um, as Leno was telling us, you know, the work of uh, Mexican farm workers to get rid of pesticides and have better environmental working conditions is very longstanding. And it was very intense and and focused work that, that dealt with environmental health. So we tend to, we tend even in our history of the environmental movement to forget the work of, of uh, communities of color. One of the things I've been really heartened by as a longtime activist in this field is seeing the, the streams converge a little bit, you know, seeing a more diverse group of people working on environmental issues than have worked on it before and making more of these global connections as you are doing. That's something that gives me hope. Uh, but there's also a feeling I have that there's still a ton more work to be done in this arena of how do you truly build multicultural coalitions around change in which everybody is an equal at the table. Um, what's your experience with that um, as as a young activist? Um, I've definitely, you know, uh, I can understand why, um, you know, the environmental movement has stayed white. Just in even like some of the work I interned for a nonprofit uh restoration nonprofit um and for a few years actually you know was first you know just planting trees but worked my way up to the development office and was helping write grants and i asked them like why are we only planting trees in um north seattle can we plant some trees in in south seattle um and uh and it was funny, and and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna work on diversity, and we're gonna go to South Seattle, and they went to Seward Park. For and, for the non-Seattle listeners, you know, Southeast Seattle tends to have is where we have the largest communities of color. Yeah. 
but Seward Park is actually pretty white. It's the view properties down in South Seattle. Yeah, and, and so that was like kind of my first realization that, you know, they would put me, my face on their newsletter and they would tokenize me, but they wouldn't actually go into my neighborhoods. And and that kind of, um, you know, became more apparent as I did um, worked with other organizations. They're doing all sorts of work in different capacities, but you know, a lot of the environmental communities don't don't work on issues. For example, when you look at North Seattle and South Seattle, South Seattle, you know, um, has more people of color, and it's also got um, higher rates of like the, the they're literally breathing different air. And if you look at Duwamish Valley, particularly um, compared to like a neighborhood in North Seattle, like Laurelhurst, there's a 13 year difference in, in um, lifespan. The people in the Duwamish Valley living next to a super fun site are going to, you know, die 13 years earlier. And yet there hasn't really been a lot of environmental groups working on that. There's that. But then also um, when communities of color do stand up and say, hey, there's this issue, it's not always, a lot of times it's not, um, the environmental groups don't even want to get involved. Um, they're not, you know, the, the issues that affect people of color, a lot of them, you know, inner city issues, um, which have to do with air quality and, um, you know, chemicals, toxics, all of that. Um, the environmental community has lagged behind that. And they've been wanting to, you know, protect the forests, um, which in some part, you know, in a large way, uh, it's not accessible to communities of color when you're talking about like national parks and you're talking about people who have paid vacation time and who have cars who can drive out to them, who have the education, who know how to camp. And then when the communities of color like work on issues, when they come out with statements, a lot of times the environmental communities, they ignore them or they argue with them and say that they're not right. You know, so with all of that, it makes sense why that, you know, why there's that division. Um, on top of that, there's the green ceiling. Um, the Green 2.0 report came out recently and was saying that the environmental organizations um, have kept below like 13% um, uh, of like people of color in their organizations for the last 35 years. Um, so they're like they and even though they have plenty of interns, they just don't hire them. Um, and so that's another issue, you know, when you work with an organization and it's all white staff, you know, that does something about, you know, inclusivity. So I think there's a lot of issues there that have to be addressed. Um, in the meantime, I think that uh, there are some groups that are doing good work and are addressing those needs. And perhaps it's best, perhaps it will just have to be separate organizations that work on these issues. Like Got Green's doing a lot of great work in South Seattle, working on issues of equity, but other groups, you know, uh, they don't see that even as environmental work. Even the Unistolten event, Indigenous Solidarity to Prevent a Pipeline, a lot of the mainstream environmental groups have not supported them, even though this is a pipeline. This is the Keystone XL in our backyard, and where are they at? So, um, yeah, it's unfortunate to see, though. And one of the things that Leno spoke about was the need for people to just get out of their own community and go to other communities just to listen and not make it about going to a community when you're trying to seek support for a specific objective. Estella Ortega talks about how she feels that in her role as a a leader of the uh, Latino community, she needs to go to 
the Filipino community and the black community and go to their important events and let them know that she's there and, and not there for any other reason, just other than to show support. Um, so I, I believe we have tons of challenges ahead about how, again, how do you build a multicultural coalition around change? Cause, cause my belief is you have to do it. You just can't get started. You, you can't address these issues unless everybody feels like their issues are on the table and are, and are, and they're part of the solution. But it doesn't start necessarily with coming up with all the solutions. It starts just by going to where people are and listening to their concerns and going from there. You know, in talking about your personal experience, you talked about the school-to-prison pipeline. Um, tell me about how your experience related to that and why, why that issue is important to you. And what is that issue? The issue is that across the country, black and brown youth are expelled and suspended at a higher rate. And essentially, they're criminalized. And it starts actually, um, this report came out in the Seattle Times, which showed, like the Seattle Public Schools, that this discrimination against black youth starts in kindergarten. It kind of sets them up for like a lifelong kind of criminal history um, by by treating them like criminals, by always thinking that they're up to something, by always blaming them when there's a ruckus in the classroom and sending for you know those kids to be the ones that get sent out continually there's a lot of like internalization of that criminalization and also then they actually with the school to prison pipeline like in the third grade reading levels based on like how many people pass and don't is how they determine how many beds they're going to build for prison like 20 years from out from there and then you look at the schools even in our liberal city of Seattle, the schools of Seattle are segregated. And the, Seattle, the schools in the South underfunded, primarily people of color. Um, they're not getting the same education, and they're getting criminalized at a higher rate. A lot of times, like with schools, like in my school, primarily a white school, in Tahoma High School, um, when a student would get in trouble, they would get sent to the, the security officer and they'd get in trouble. But um, in Renton High School, um, uh, primarily a black school, the police would come if they got in trouble and would take them away. In the high school, they actually kind of let the police in. And that's, you know, another... So then you're starting to get your first interaction with the police during school, things that the teachers and the the school staff should have been dealing with, not bringing in the police. Um, so it's it's a large, complicated issue stems back down to racism and it stems back down to like poverty but also racism because I went to more of like upper middle class um, high school primarily white high school and I was treated that way it's really unfortunate because until we like address these issues we're really just um, we're failing our youth we're um, you know criminalizing our youth and um, we're not letting people of color really live up to their their full potential because of um, this. You know, when you when you look at schools, right, and you think of teachers and principals and school boards, not a single one of them would say that they want this outcome. Not a single one of them would say that they believe in this outcome or that they're personally capable of leading to it, yet somehow or another it happens. I think that's one of the hardest things for communities to deal with is to deal with the fact that you can have everybody holding one set of values and professing one set of values and then ending up with a set of outcomes that is completely inconsistent with their values. 
And I think a lot of racism is um, in this day and age is um, more um, subconscious and it makes it almost harder to deal with. If there was someone yelling at me the N-word, I would know he was a racist. But if someone invites me to their home and treats me nicely, um, but then doesn't, you know, uh, doesn't treat me the same way, you know, I wouldn't even know. Um, and it's, it's hard to um, distinguish it. Um, because of like kind of the way that racism has become passive but still very aggressive, it um, makes it harder, you know, to pick out and it makes it harder to distinguish. And a lot of times, then, like when I got expelled for bringing, you know, roots, you know, natural supplements to school, I thought that I was a bad kid. I thought that I was a failure. I didn't realize that it was part of this larger systemic issue um, of the criminalization of our black and brown youth. And so I think that's also why it's important to understand that. Sara, this has been a great discussion. So I always start the show with a song that I like and why I like it. And then I usually close with a song that my guest likes and why they like it. So what's the song you picked and why did you choose it? Um, I picked uh, the song called Glory. It's by Common and um, John Legend. Um, And I think they're a powerful duo. The reason I chose it was because, for two different reasons, in doing a lot of this Black Lives Matter work, it it is kind of depressing um, to watch Selma, to read about civil rights history, and see that we're still fighting the same issues, and that we're still having churches get burned and uh, cops shooting black people. But at the same time, what I like about the the song Glory, even though they, they touch on it, and it's kind of like an intergenerational song, where they link the struggles of the civil rights to the struggles of today, it's very hopeful. And it gives me like hope and like, oh, we have to, you know, we have to keep going. We have to keep fighting because work isn't over. Our our job isn't done. We have to continue. Also, there's a lot of not so positive rap. And I think that is also a form of neocolonization where you have um, them perpetuating this lifestyle that perpetuates the prison industrial complex. So I like that, you know, to have a song, you know, written by black men promoting this hopeful vision of, of justice um, and doing it in such a way that's very empowering. No man, no weapon Formed against, yes, glory is destined Everyday women and men become legends Sins that go against our skin become blessings The movement is a rhythm to us Freedom is like religion to us Justice is juxtaposition in us Justice for all, just ain't